It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The coronavirus has hit all European countries and it has put all our health systems under pressure. I have today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. How is it possible for us to be stronger after this crisis? Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And we hope you're doing okay in what is now week five of lockdown for many of us anyway. Later in this episode, you'll hear from Anu Bradford, a professor at Columbia Law School in New York, talking about what she calls the Brussels effect. And you'll get a tour of the virtual European Parliament. But first, we have highlights of something a bit different. A little twist on the way we usually do our panel discussion. So we're trying something different. It's a live Twitter chat uh, version of the panel on EU Confidential. So as I was just saying, if you're following it on Twitter, it's like the panel, but without the accents. And um, basically, we're going to be taking questions from listeners and uh, political readers via Twitter. And we will try and also do a kind of audio version of that. So let you know what we're doing, what the questions are and how we're answering. Um, So let's see how it goes. Uh, Joining me for this, uh, Sarah Wheaton, our senior health reporter. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Andrew. Uh, Annabelle Dixon in Norwich. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good morning. Uh, Reem is unfortunately not with us. She's off this week on some uh, well-earned holiday, but she'll be back with us next week. So just waiting for the... um, I can kick things off with... I'm just checking. Now I have to juggle between various feeds here to see if anybody's asked us a question yet. So first question to get the ball rolling in our EU confidential chat to Sarah Wheaton. You've talked to a lot of the key EU health officials. Is there one thing they'd have done differently if they had the chance to do this again? When I have been talking to people, they say, yeah, obviously this didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, but they so far have kind of rejected the idea that they did anything wrong in the moment. Um, For example, in my interview with the um, head of the European Centers for Disease Prevention and Control, Andrea Ammon, I said, is there a particular piece of advice that countries could have followed to avoid this? And she said, basically, no, I don't see how we could have avoided this. Um, And one point that she made is that this virus, which was poorly understood, um, was probably actually circulating around Europe um, long before we really realized. And uh, and so therefore, we actually should have been doing a lot of the tracking and tracing a lot earlier. Basically, everything that you hear um, officials saying they need to do in order for us to come out of lockdown, that's stuff that they started should have started doing earlier. This is a, I mean, this is a big question that's been asked in London as well. Um, my esteemed colleague Emilio had a question at the daily press conference and asked um, the health officials exactly that. 
what would they have done differently? And the response was a very kind of humble, we're learning all the time, we wish we'd known what we know now in January. But in terms of specifics, no one's very keen to um, hold their hands up and say that they got any specifics particularly wrong. And they still insist that they did the right things at the right time and were led by the science. All right, Matt, I'm going to launch a new one your way. Uh, This is from Tomasz Vlostowski, I think, who says, if you were to name a few major points of disagreement between the EC on the one hand and member states on the other on how to craft the exit strategy, what were they? You know, what, what, one of the things that I think that's interesting about this exit strategy question is that, you know, all of these examples are flying out there, you know, including uh, in our own publication about how Austria is opening the um, kind of big box, you know, Home Depot, like do-it-yourself stores. But in, in some places, like in Germany, again, they never closed the, um, the big construction stores and uh, they never closed the bookstores. So, you know, I, 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 I think it's a mistake to read too much into the, these individual measures. The question is, you know, when do you really start to open things up again? And um, I don't think anybody, you know, really, really knows what the formula for that is until you until you try it and see if it works. To Matt's point, it's it's true that we we don't actually know what works and what doesn't, and um, and many researchers have pointed out that we are not actually operating based on on real evidence. But I do think it makes sense to think of this as choreography as opposed to a single moment for when we say, okay, everybody's going to shut down and everybody's going to lift. And the reality is that these countries do border each other. And if you have one country that has, you know, very strict restrictions and another one that is that's lifting things up, uh, that does have potential to to prolong the the spread um, around the block. Uh, but the the kind of observation that I made um, in the Twitter chat is countries uh, seem to on the one hand, they they ask the commit. They have this recognition that they all need to choreograph or coordinate their reaction, and so they ask the commission to create this exit plan. But then they all just started putting out their own exit plans without waiting for the commission, and they even asked the commission um, to delay a week before putting out their roadmap for exit. And many of those countries use that week to debut their own ideas. And as somebody who covers health policy at the EU level a lot. Um, this frequently comes up where uh, countries don't even want the EU to kind of issue a recommendation or issue an opinion, because even if the opinion is just advisory, then that will put political pressure on that company on that country to follow along with that advice. And they don't want to be beholden to it. And so it seems like we're seeing that happen once again with this exit strategy. Yeah, and this is this is the thing, as you say, some of them had more strict lockdown measures to start with. So in a sense, by easing, they're coming into line with others. But then at the same time, you have others who did have a kind of a looser restriction who may be now thinking about going further. So, I mean, actually, one of the challenges for us is just to keep track of exactly, you know, all the different measures in the different countries. I mean, I certainly feel like I have, when I try and think what the Belgian rules are, I kind of have a mishmash in my head of about five countries' rules, which I'm vaguely aware of. So that's my excuse if the Belgian police uh, accuse me of doing the wrong thing. Shall I start answering James Holland's question about Brexit? He says, many ardent critics of Boris's government's handling of COVID-19 were previously vocal Remainers. Do you think lingering anger about Brexit is driving some of this criticism? Okay, that's a good question. Good question, isn't it? Yeah, okay. 
Do you want to tell us what you're typing as you type it? Or oh, I'm not sure I can multitask like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think I do think there is a kind of the, the cultural war continues. Um, you know, there have been questions about whether we should have cooperated more with the EU, and um, Remainers are very angry about us not trying to be part of ventilator and PPE schemes. Others say, well, we've left. And actually, the EU is not exactly covering itself in glory at the moment. Um, certainly, I've read read that column a number of times in the British press in the last week. So, yeah, I, I, I certainly do think people do see it through a Brexit lens still. Right. The other thing to say is that it does also impact on Brexit because obviously we were meant to be, in theory, powering ahead with negotiations, which would mean there was a deal by the end of the year. And obviously that timetable gets very, very difficult when you can't do face-to-face negotiations. And of course, you know, both chief negotiators were uh, isolating for a period. Michel Barnier tested positive. I don't know if David Frost actually tested positive, but he certainly isolated as a precaution at some point. So it also impacts on on Brexit in that way as well. Okay, so I can take this one uh, quickly from, now I think it's uh, Eugenio Fontan Onyate, who says, do you think a substantial EU budget increase can be considered from now on? And uh, as I'm the editor who oversees EU budget coverage, I'm going to just weigh in on this to say that I certainly think it's up for debate. You know, um, as as people will remember, uh, we had an EU uh, summit in February, I think, which failed to agree on the next multi-annual financial framework, seven-year budget. And then the debate was over whether it should be roughly about sort of 1.06, 1.07% of gross national income kind of measure of the European economy or, you know, a bit bigger or a bit smaller, but very much, you know, at the margins. And now the question is, um, the Commission is going to come forward with a revised uh, MFF proposal. Uh, Are they going to go big on that in terms of the number or as the Budget Commissioner Johannes Hahn has suggested uh, that they're going to perhaps at least be asked to be allowed to borrow more, even if they're not actually spending more, or to provide loan guarantees, which would be backed by the member states. So there are various ways in which this could play out. But the budget debate, which is already a difficult debate, could just get a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult. We're just going to have to see, because on the other hand, these sums of money compared to the sums that are being thrown around now are actually relatively small. So countries could decide, really, this is just at the margins, or they could decide, actually, every euro counts. We can't afford to be giving more to the EU budget right now. Yeah, I just don't know, though, why any country would be willing to spend more on the EU budget at this stage, given that their economies are just going to be absolutely ravaged. And, you know, right. that that's also true for, for Germany, you know, which is seen by everybody as, you know, this very well-off country, which I, I, I guess it is compared to others at the moment. But, you know, Germany is going to be really struggling with this too. And and the political debate domestically in all of these countries, I think is going to make it difficult to spend more on the EU. I mean, just in general, I, I think going back to the last question we were discussing about opening the, the, the economies again, the, the EU is the big loser, I think, in in all of this. Yeah, well, I think the EU is obviously trying to position itself to be the kind of, you know, the, the holder of the recovery fund or various other things that could be of direct benefit to a lot of countries. But whether, as you say, countries are willing to hand over that power and that money to them, I think is very much, um, you know, up for debate. So, OK, we need to keep our uh, Twitter gang happy. I'm just looking to see if we have any other questions. 
Uh, this one's from Madeleine Pitt. She says, history has shown that the EU often finds the impetus to integrate further after a crisis. Arguably, the sure plan is the closest the EU has come to a genuine European social policy. Is there potential for the EU to forge closer bonds after COVID? It's a good question. I, I, I don't think that it's going to do this. I, I, I think that it's going to actually pull the EU uh, further apart, also because of the economic impact. I think it's interesting just kind of the ease with which Schengen has effectively been been suspended. Nobody's really talking about it now. This is the second time that that's happened in recent years after the refugee crisis. So Schengen just seems to be this kind of on-off switch, you know, that anybody can um, suspend when, when they feel like it. So I, I, I think it's it's going to be a kind of feeding frenzy for for populists and and people who are are more skeptical of the EU. And then there's the whole economic piece, where you know you already have obviously Italians and Spanish wondering why they're not getting more financial help uh, from the EU and asking, well, what, you know, what, what's the point of further integration if you know, we're not getting what we need from the EU as it is. So I think there's a real danger that things could go in the opposite direction. I think it's certainly a danger. Uh, there is obviously the question as to, you know, whether things like, uh, you know, sure, as, as Madeline suggests, become, you know, this old thing about temporary sol- solutions becoming the longest lasting and whether that, you know, whether that ends up being the case. Okay, so there's a couple of kind of quick, short questions. Would an older and more entrenched European Commission, in other words, Juncker's Commission from last year, have been more bold in responding to COVID-19? So as a health reporter, I can't speak as much about the economic response, but I actually am skeptical that the Juncker Commission would have necessarily done a lot more on the health response because the Juncker Commission really passionately preserved uh, the the commission's lack of relevance and ambition on on health policy matters. Whereas uh, Ursula von der Leyen is a medical doctor. Um, she has made Europe's beating cancer plan a major, major part of her. Of Although her she hasn't practiced medicine since 1990, just leaving that out there. But. Thanks, Matt. I, that's true, but uh, you can still... Um, I think if you compare her medical qualifications to Juncker, uh, she's probably slightly ahead. Again, I'm, I'm comparing her only to Juncker. Um, we, you know, she has kind of really personalized some of these health issues, such as cancer. Um, she also has, has given DG Sante a bigger mandate and one um, that was meant to, to focus quite aggressively on drug prices and on drug shortages. And those factors might actually be quite relevant in the kind of medium to long term response to to coronavirus. So um, I actually I actually think that on health, um, this commission uh, might end up being more more ambitious in their response. Mm. I would just say while while you guys are, are typing or or talking, I think one of the questions is kind of political leadership, I guess. And I do think we saw uh, quite a demonstration last week when the, you know, the commission wanted to roll out its uh, roadmap, was basically told in no uncertain terms by uh, member states not to do that, that it would send the wrong, wrong signal at the wrong time and back down, having publicly announced that it was going to do this. And in purely kind of, you know, power politics terms, that felt like a move that had not been well coordinated enough in advance. And then 
when the point came that they had said they were going to do this and then did not, that obviously looked like, you know, they were being told what to do by the member states. And I think that, uh, you know, as the questioner suggests, if you like a more entrenched commission, a more self-confident commission would perhaps have organised that, lined those things up, got their ducks in a row a bit better. And two, even if they'd been told by member states, might just have said, well, you know, I'm the president of the European Commission. I'm going to do this. And and it's a reminder, I think, that we have a very new leadership team here in Brussels. Ursula von der Leyen never worked in the EU or in the EU institutions before she suddenly became commission president. Charles Michel is new as European Council president, although he was Belgium prime minister for a little while. And a lot of the, the commissioners in, in these key roles are new as well. And, and also we don't have a secretary general with the kind of experience uh, that Martin Selmayr uh, had. Now, of course, a very controversial figure. Some people would say that's good. Some people would say it's not. But it definitely, I think, affects the kind of confidence of the institution, put it that way. This whole question of what role the commission should play here kind of cuts to the core of how people see the EU evolving and whether the commission should uh, be more uh, proactive, you know, should be this political commission as as Juncker envisioned it. And the reality is, is that most governments, if not all, oppose that course. And they do not want the commission to be interfering in crucial decisions like this, which really go right to the heart of a country's sovereignty. I mean, these are these are what prime ministers and chancellors are elected to do. And I, I don't think that uh, most Europeans want Brussels to be deciding on the exit strategy. Okay, well, I think I'm going to thank everybody on Twitter for taking part on a, in our uh, chat. So, guys... Thank you to everybody for for joining in in this um, unique experiment. We hope you enjoyed that live Twitter chat and our behind-the-scenes discussion. Thanks to everyone who took part, and we're happy to hear from you anytime. You can find us individually on Twitter, or you can drop us a line at podcast at politico.eu. Now let's continue a series we began last week, a virtual tour of the Brussels bubble, looking at how politics normally works in the EU capital and how it's working at the moment, in these very strange and constrained times. Last week, our colleague Lily Beyer walked us through a virtual midday press briefing, and we can report that the day after our podcast was published, the Commission announced plans for an interactive version of the briefing, starting this week. Here's a taste of what that sounded like, with our very own David Herzenhorn asking a virtual question directly to the Commission's chief spokesperson, Eric Mamer. I see that David uh, Herzenhorn has his hand raised, so let's pass David the floor. David, you have the floor. Thanks, Eric. Can you hear me okay? I can. I can't see you, but I can, but I, I can hear you. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, perfect. And thanks so much for, uh, for bringing this uh, interactivity back to the midday, uh, which is much appreciated. Uh, just following up. So now we have our colleague Maya de la Bom, who's going to take us on a virtual tour of the European Parliament. So Maya, the European Parliament meets again this week for its second virtual plenary session. Um, before we get into what that looks like, can you just describe to us what a normal session is like in the pre-corona times? Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the European Parliament, the House of Democracy, 
the only one institution, European institution elected by the citizens. So, uh, generally, the European Parliament meets in Strasbourg for uh, either one or two plenary sessions per month. And um, once you get inside the building in Strasbourg, it's a very busy place with a lot of people running around and a lot of MEPs who then go to the hemicycle to vote on uh, EU legislation, on, on legislation that has been put forward by the European Commission. So it's a place, it's a very exciting and funny place where you see a lot of people working, uh, so, some voting and others going to meetings with other MEPs, other meeting uh, their, uh, you know, fellow countrymen from their own countries. And so basically, it's just a very lively place. Also in Brussels, right? The Brussels uh, building is also quite a lively place, even though they don't hold plenaries there. Yes, because in Brussels, they have also committee meetings where they also vote, but in, in I would say, smaller groups, because in Strasbourg, it's MEPs voting. And in Brussels, it's more like committee uh, votes and sometimes mini sessions. But, you know, the, the core of the European Parliament is really in Strasbourg. Right. And it's kind of also a place where European politics comes alive to an extent. Um, you know, we get some some um, memorable speeches. Um, let's play a little bit from somebody who, ironically, for such a big uh, sceptic about Europe, did very well on the European stage politically, uh, Nigel Farage. Let's hear a, a, little, a little bite of him. The question that I want to ask, that we're all going to ask, is who are you? I'd never heard of you. Nobody in Europe had ever heard of you. I would like to ask you, President, who voted for you? And what OK, so that's Parliament, if you like, in, in full flow. Um, you know, we should say there's also Europhiles who make very uh, memorable speeches there as well. Giefer Hofstadt uh, is one who might fit into that category. The problem of humiliation and punishment is because of the mass in the Tory party. There is the humiliation of the British people. Yeah, sitting in your group. They are not even there. They are not even there. The only, the only who is there is Mr. Farage. That's a surprise for me because I thought that he was marching somewhere in Britain. But Maya, so how has that all changed since the corona time? Um, what changes has the parliament made to adapt to the current restrictions? Basically, to sum it up, I would say that most MEPs are now uh, in their home countries, uh, with the exception of several ones who are still in Brussels, but you know most of them are out, are doing remote working, while the staff of the European Parliament is also working from home. So, so the Parliament is really basically very empty these days. You have only a few people who are, you know, close to the presidency of the European Parliament or the Secretary General's office, but you know it's an empty building basically. Right. And what about the Strasbourg, the, the, you know, the monthly pilgrimage to Strasbourg? So basically, we won't have any plenary session in Strasbourg until July, which means that most um, opportunities uh, that MEPs will have to vote will be in Brussels and they will have many sessions. Basically, they are voting uh, by email right now since they are in their home countries. So it's a whole different job right now for an MEP because basically they are getting very short legislative proposals and they have emer an emergency procedure which really prevents them from deliberating, from amending laws. So they just, you know, have to 
sign a paper, uh, put their vote, uh, you know, cross cross their vote on a piece of paper, uh, print it, and then scan it back to the parliament. So there's no, not any sort of, you know, session to uh, deliberate on, on laws, to talk about, uh, to build coalition with other groups, to, to really discuss law as, you know, as MEPs do in general. Right. And they have tried to do these kind of uh, virtual committee meetings and, and virtual uh, plenary sessions, which are basically video conferences. Right. And you picked out uh, one of these from the regional committee from from last time around, uh, which gives us a flavour of how uh, a digital parliament sounds. Well, it seems that uh, Raffaele Fitto has some problems with connection. If you can hear us, then please Give us a sign when you're ready to take the floor. But now I'll hand the floor to the GUI NGL group, Martina Michels. Martina? Okay, Martina isn't there either. So for the non-attached members, Rosa D'Amato. Please press the speak button. Okay. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. Grazie, Presidente. Yes, thank you very much, Chairman. So, Maya, what are MEPs saying about this way of operating? How are they feeling at the moment about, you know, how much they're able to, to do their jobs? It's very hard for them right now because basically everybody understands that these are exceptional circumstances. So the parliament needed to adapt itself to to social distancing, uh, to remote working. But clearly it really prevents MEPs from doing what they do in general, which I was saying is, is really deliberation, amending legislative proposals. And and they, they complain a lot uh, about you know having sort of to deal with an executive power that is just dominating right now any decision making in Europe so it's very hard for them to really play a role to know exactly what to do in these circumstances so um what they are left with is mainly putting pressure on the commission and on the council to do more and so they are also giving trying to give uh, you know other institutions their own opinion on how the EU is managing this crisis so this week at the plenary session we will have uh, a big uh, you know parliament resolution on you know what MEPs think of the way um, the EU is managing the crisis right now right and maybe just finally there is also a very social aspect to the parliament right yeah you know maybe many people who work at the parliament they go to have drinks on the Place de Luxembourg, which is the place, the little square uh, right opposite the main building. And a lot of interns and assistants go uh, to the, the bars uh, around the, that square. And there's it's very lively and people love to talk about, you know, politics uh, outside the building. And right now, if you go there now, it's really empty. There's not much going on. And so it's not just parliamentary life. It's also this... Uh, the the excitement that goes with uh, working at the parliament that's not there anymore. Yeah, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe some assistants can tell us if they're doing kind of virtual plus looks to try and uh, you know simulate a little bit of that. But for now, yeah, as you say, it's a very uh, empty place. Okay, Maya, I think that covers it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. 
Now, let's hear from our feature guest this week, Professor Anu Bradford of Columbia Law School. She spoke with our producer Christina Gonzalez during a trip to Brussels in early March, before lockdown put a stop to travel as we know it. After the interview, you'll hear a bit more about how Professor Bradford believes the coronavirus crisis could impact her research on what she calls the Brussels effect. So my name is Anu Bradford. I'm a professor at Columbia Law School and the author of a new book called The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. So I have to start with the obvious question, which is, can you explain the Brussels effect? Yeah, absolutely. So Brussels effect refers to the European Union's ability to unilaterally regulate the global market. The EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world, and there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So these companies follow EU rules as the price for entering the EU market. But often these companies extend those EU rules and regulations across their global conduct and production um, because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple regulatory regimes. So all the EU needs to do is to regulate the single market. And it is then the global companies that globalize those EU rules. And can you give us a few examples of um, perhaps the most effective use of this regulatory power? I think one of the most prominent examples is the general data protection regulation. It has really shaped the conduct of uh, digital companies around the world. But there are also a lot of traditional examples. If we think about the regulation of chemicals, Uh, many companies around the world uh, stay away from chemicals that are not fit for exportation in the EU market. And they have removed those chemicals even from the products that they are exporting around the world. And maybe on the flip side, are there certain examples where the Brussels effect hasn't been so effective globally? So um, there are some examples like the EU would like to probably set global standards on labor protection or human rights. But those don't really lend themselves to this kind of market-based mechanism where the global companies would be externalizing their policies. There's nothing to suggest that an American company would need to give the the EU vacation policy to its US uh, uh, employees. So those are some examples. I think finance is another one. Um, Capitalist mobile, if EU was to regulate capital with very extensive standards, capital can move away from the EU. So you just mentioned labor standards, and we've already seen questions about this play out when it comes to Brexit and the UK and the EU really trying to work through, you know, a level playing field, for example, when it comes to labor standards, when it comes to food safety and all of these questions that they now have to negotiate over the next coming months. So how does the Brussels effect square with Brexit? So the Brussels effect directly undermines Brexit. So there will be no such thing as regulatory sovereignty awaiting the UK on the other side of Brexit. So if you think about it, about 45% of the UK's export share is to the EU market. The EU is the most important export destination for a variety of UK industries. These companies need the access to the EU even after leaving the EU. And to do so, they need to comply with EU standards. And they have little economic interest to then set up a second production line in order to cater the much smaller UK market or the other export markets. So in that sense, we will see the regulatory alignment, no matter what the political choice of the UK government would be, as these companies gravitate towards the EU standards. 
Um, we may see another shift, though, which is something that the Brexiteers are not comfortable with. Uh, and by that, I mean that the UK companies may be living in all the more regulated Europe and the Brussels effect may actually be stronger because the UK no longer has its moderating pro-market voice as part of the decision-making. The UK will not be sitting at the tables where those regulations are being set. So there's much more space for the Franco-German pro-regulation uh, preferences to prevail. So the UK has cho chosen to be a rule-taker as opposed to rule-maker in potentially much more regulated Europe. We're speaking in the week when the EU has unveiled its climate law, And here we also see the tensions between climate ambitions to regulate on the one hand, but then also competition uh, or the need for companies to adapt to climate laws on the other. Can you discuss a bit about how you see the climate law um, fitting in with the Brussels effect and its ability to kind of set global standards when it comes to environmental regulation? So I think this is a huge deal and, and a tremendous opportunity uh, for the European Union. And I expect the, the Commission to be very strongly focused on delivering uh, in this area. It's One of its priorities is the digital uh, Europe and the other one is really uh, the Green Deal. So um, I think that uh, the EU has at least the incentive to have a global effect. And there may be elements of the new Green Deal, and, and there are many parts to it, if you look at what the Commission has uh, in mind, that lend themselves to the kind of market-driven externalization through the Brussels effect. But then there are other areas like the, the carbon tariff that I think is not going to be under the radar that would certainly uh, catch the attention of foreign governments and potentially invite backlash. That is not to say that the EU should refrain from picking that fight. Some fights are worth fighting for. But uh, it will not follow necessarily the same kind of quiet logic where the EU simply regulates the single market and the global companies voluntarily adopt uh, those uh, rules. We see a global marketplace where China is growing, and you've mentioned the Beijing effect, for example. Um, so as Europe potentially shrinks as a market, especially with the UK having left, how does this also impact the EU's ability to be a global actor? So I think it is inevitable, and we all agree that the EU share of the global economy will decline. And with the decline market share, there is the potential that also Brussels effect would become weaker because there will be a set of companies that can afford not to trade in the EU if the EU regulates with too heavy hand. And they might find opportunities elsewhere, including in the growing markets like China. But what I believe will happen is that the EU's regulatory power will outlive its economic power measured purely based on GDP. And that is because the GDP per capita, the wealth of the consumers, is a better predictor of the country's willingness to regulate. And it will be a while before Chinese consumers are so wealthy that they will be demanding the levels of regulation that the European consumers are demanding. And I think by the time China gets there, the, the country's overall GDP growth will have slowed to the degree that the government may be less willing to push for regulations that may further dampen that growth. So I don't think we see a Beijing effect replace the Brussels effect anytime soon. So what comes next then? What's top of mind for you moving forward? So I think uh, all of us are watching what will happen in AI. 
I think the stakes are enormous. Um, it will affect so many industries and sectors of the economy um, that it will have very wide-reaching implications. And I think if the Brussels effect teaches us anything, is the stakes involved in EU getting it right. Because to the extent there are AI applications where the, the Brussels effect dynamic will indeed export the EU regulation globally, it means that if EU gets it right, it gets it globally right. But if the EU doesn't get it right, it also has ramifications outside of the EU. Now, since recording that interview, a lot has changed in the world. Uh, Christina, you caught up recently with Professor Bradford again to find out more about how she thinks the global pandemic might impact the Brussels effect. So what did she have to say? Yeah, so it's really amazing how much has changed just in the last few weeks since we spoke Professor Bradford was, of course, very quick to point out that it really is too soon to tell. But in her observation, she believes that so long as globalization doesn't come to a drastic halt, the Brussels effect will continue. But she's also monitoring a few other developments. And the first one is whether this crisis leads to more or less EU regulation, Right now, it's uncertain whether there will be deepening anti-EU sentiment after this crisis or the pursuit of what she calls, quote, more Europe, um, which has sometimes been the response to big challenges we've seen throughout history. She also believes the EU's power will survive this storm a bit better than most um, because of, and these are my words, not hers, but because of its more wonky technocratic nature, meaning that there may be a global pandemic playing out, but there are still many colleagues at the commission who are working from home and continuing to work through files that may be completely unrelated to the more immediate health and economic crisis. But she does admit that regulations will likely slow down in the immediate future. And of course, we're already seeing this play out. But if anything, Professor Bradford feels that when it comes to the EU's digital policies, which she talked about, that this crisis may force officials to rethink its approach to data and technology. So we'll see how this plays out. But the bottom line is that the Brussels effect may shift, but it likely won't be going away. Okay, thanks, Christina. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Please rate us by clicking some stars or leaving a review. And you can also email us at podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back with a new episode on Monday evening. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and to our events team for setting up our Twitter chat. Special thanks to Mathilde Chochi for guiding us through it. And thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.